Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 72, which is the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, February the 2nd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, it is Groundhog Day. It's also my wife's birthday, and so I wish to say happy birthday to her as I get started on this. So we've got today, we're continuing in the prophetic uh, words of Isaiah, chapter 54, verses 1 to 17 today, uh, continuing in the epistle of Paul to the Galatian church, chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, and in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verses 11 to 26. So let's jump into the Isaiah passage. Sing, O barren, one who did not bear. Bring, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in labor. So, in other words, what he's saying is there's miraculous things that are happening here. The barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who, you who have not been in labor. In other words, these are the, the barren women are to, to cry out and sing because the deliverance of God is there. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord, which is what happened, for instance, with Hannah. After she had Samuel, he opened her womb and she had more children. After that, more than her rival wife, Peninnah. And so it's, it's God saying is, is that your time has come. You who have felt rejected, who have believed that they were not loved and they were not cared for, those who have struggled and suffered, the time has come for your deliverance. And so sing for that at the promise, not just the fulfillment of the promise, but the promise itself is enough because of the one who makes the promise. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. And so why are you going to enlarge your tent? Because it's going to be fuller. There's going to be more people sharing in that space. Uh, don't hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and your people, the desolate cities. So it's the fulfillment in some ways of the promise that God made to Abraham so long ago. Right, that their descendants would be countless as the stars in the sky, the sand on the sea. <clears throat> and so it's, it's this same promise is, is that you might have been whittled down while you were here in Babylon, but now when you go back, I'm going to bless you mightily. I'm going to open the wombs of all the people of Israel in order that you would fill the land, which is exactly the promise, not the promise, but the commandment that was given in the beginning to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. And here God says, I'm going to make you fruitful, which means I'm going to bless you with my blessing. And that blessing will then bring about fruitfulness. He says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. And it's, you know, even now, it's not been even a full year since what happened with Will, which happened in March. And we already kind of have lost sight of the struggle that we went through all those weeks that he was in um, 
ICU and then that in a coma and then also during the recovery phase and all that kind of stuff. I mean, everything is so good now that we no longer even forget. We no longer even remember those things very clearly uh, when we talk about them. He said, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. So the the one, I mean, this is an intimate thing, that, that the one who has created all things is husband, also father, and the Redeemer. It's an intimacy of relationship. Is there's a movement from the transcendent maker to the imminent husband, and he's both those at the same time. And ultimately, what we'll see is is that that he is God among us, in the form of Jesus. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off. Says your God. So I'm changing your status from what you have been to what you are. For a brief moment, I deserted you with great compassion. I will gather you for in overflowing anger for a moment. I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. In other words, he, I made a covenant with you, and I made a covenant with Noah back in the day when I put the bow in the cloud and said, this will never happen again. Well, I have a covenant with you that's no less a covenant than the covenant with all mankind not to destroy the earth by flood. So the covenant is between him and the people. And he says that there's no difference between the two of these. That covenant is an everlasting covenant. It will never end, no matter what you do, because it was sworn on me and my faithfulness. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and your wall of precious stones. So, so he's saying that, that what's coming is more glorious than what was. You can't imagine it now. You can't believe that it's actually going to happen, but it will. And it's, I'm bringing it to pass. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come upon you. It's, it's going to be a different day. You've... You have forgotten because you never knew how good things can actually be. And he's encouraging this people who is in exile and are crying out no less than, in some ways, their forefathers did when they were down in Egypt. He's encouraging them to get a vision for life. And that vision is based in God's promise, and it's based then in his faithfulness. And he's telling them it's going to be better than you can ever imagine. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you, because I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. 
So he, he says, you know, you're not going to, you're going to have an incredibly glorious life in the land. And that's my promise to you. It's going to be a beautiful place. It's going to be better than it was before. And none shall harm you in that place. It's that beatific promise of the, the ultimate redemption of the world when when Jesus returns and things are restored to the way God has always intended them to be. And the only way that we can get from point A to point B is the restoration of humans to what we were intended to be. It's the renovation of the heart, the renovation of life into the image of God and unsullied and unmarred by the presence of sin. And so after that, then there will be nothing to bother us because this righteousness that we possess now only by faith will be truly ours in the kingdom to come. In the gospel lesson today, we see three different sort of vignettes, and all of them have to do with exactly the same thing, and that is, is that seeing you do not perceive. In other words, there's got to be... Um, you've seen things and you know some things. However, you're still not seeing things correctly, and it's demonstrated in a healing that he does of a blind man. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. I mean, how many signs has Jesus given at this point? I mean, he's just fed 5,000, then he fed 4,000, and he's healed people, and he's done all this stuff, and yet they're still coming asking for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation except the fact that Jesus does all kinds of signs that point to who he must be. But they're coming to the wrong conclusions. I mean, things like if he casts out a demon, then he does it by the power of a demon. Uh, no, that doesn't make any sense. So they're not able to evaluate the signs that they've been given. And so there's no reason for him to give them the sign that they want because it, it wouldn't make any difference. They would forget about it in an instant. And we know that that's the case, because we are like that, but we know that because the disciples are like that, right, Jesus? They've already seen Jesus feed in two different occasions, one 5,000 and one 4,000. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them. All right, so we've got one loaf. We have something to work with, right? There was one loaf in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So it's an odd statement, to, to kind of couple that with them forgetting about um, bread and then him speaking of leaven and the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod would be doubt. It would be the, the inability to believe no matter what you see. And so the, you would, the, it would, the doubt that's sown among the people would be the leaven of the Pharisees, the, 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 that which looks for a sign but never even understands the sign that was given to it, and the leaven of Herod. In other places, it's called the leaven of the Sadducees, which there would be no sign for them. There'd be no sign possible for them. They already have chosen to decide, I don't believe in things like resurrection of the dead. I don't believe in things like angels. None of those things actually exist. And so so you've got the leaven of doubt, and you've got the leaven of disbelief or unbelief. It could With Herod, you could say the hardness of heart, right? Because that was the issue with him, was a hardness of heart. He heard John he believed John. He knew John was telling the truth. But the problem was is that, that he didn't want to give up his brother's wife. And so he made a stupid decision, a rash vow, and, and it cost John his life. 
And so it's a that those are the two leavens. And so they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Really? When Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, you think this somehow had to do with bread? And so Jesus, aware of it, said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you don't see and ears, you don't hear and you don't remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And I can imagine them sitting there trying to do the math on that and figuring, okay, well, you know, it doesn't work. The math doesn't work. Because when he had the 5,000, what did he do? Okay, so, so we had five loaves, and how much did we take up? Well, 12 baskets full. And when we fed the 4,000, there were seven, and then we took up five baskets full, or seven baskets full. And they're trying to figure out the math in this. I mean, I can see that, right? I mean, that's what they're doing is, wait a minute, so what are the commonalities? And uh, No, and they're missing the main point, and that is is that, that, that I turned scarcity into abundance. I had something to work with, and so I turned scarcity into abundance, and that abundance fed all those people, and, and so much so that there was plenty left over at the end of that. So uh, do you not see this? Do you not understand? And they didn't understand in the same way the Pharisees didn't understand. They were overlooking these realities, and now they're worrying about bread because they only have one loaf among them. And, and it's the way we live, though. We can see God do great things, and then we can slide into this doubt and disbelief thing over the next thing that comes along. It's what happened to Elijah, right? I mean, he defeats the prophets of Baal. And then 10 minutes later, he's running from Jezebel saying, you know, to heck with it. I abandoned the field. I quit. I'm going out into the wilderness. I'm done with this thing. It's, it's, we live in that place where we think we have strong faith, but the reality is it's very vulnerable and it's very weak. It's not what it ought to be, not what it should be, and not what it will be. So after this, though, they come to a town called Bethsaida, and the people there brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him in the same way that the people brought the paralytic to Jesus and asked him to heal him. So here he gets these people who bring him. Now, blind people would have been able to beg. They wouldn't have worked, but they would have been able to beg. They would have been provided for by the synagogue or the temple. They would have, there would have been an obligation, if this man's a Jew, and we assume that he is, there would have been an obligation to provide for him because he's unable to provide for himself. And so that at the same way, he would have been ostracized from the temple and from places of worship because he had this deformity. So, but these people bring him because they care for him, obviously. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. These people cared enough about him to bring him to Jesus. Yet Jesus takes him by the hand and takes him out of the village to do this healing. And then he spits on his eyes and laid his hands on him. And he said, do you see anything? So it, remember in John 9, when he heals a man born blind, what does he do? He takes him and he, he, makes, he spits and he makes some mud and puts it on the man's eyes and then tells him to go rinse it off. Here he spits on the man's eyes. And said, what do you see? He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. In other words, I see shadows of things, things not as they are. I see things only in a, in a kind of veiled way. I know what they are. I'm making guesses about what they are based on the fact that they're moving. They must not be trees because I, I, I know trees don't walk. So it must be people because I know what walks. And so he, he's, his sight is improved, certainly. He sees something, but he doesn't understand what he sees. It doesn't make sense to him. It looks like trees walking, but I know it can't be trees walking, so it must be people because they're walking. 
<clears throat> then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Don't even enter the village. Don't go back there. Um, there must be some reason that he tells him to do that, because he sent the garrison demoniac wants to leave with Jesus, in spite of the fact that, I mean, you know, that, that there are demons in that place. That that guy wants to leave, but Jesus won't let him. He says, no, you go back in there and you be a witness to those people. So here we have no earthly idea why he doesn't take him, why he doesn't let him go back to the village to be the witness to the people. But what we see is, is that, that we see through a mirror darkly, as Paul says, and so later we will see him face to face. And the problem that we have is, is that we see a lot of things and we misperceive what we see. We're guessing at at that, and, and we, we live with a tolerable sense of that, and yet the reality is Jesus has so much more to offer us than just a tolerable healing. He wants us to be f- complete. He wants us to be people who are, who are healed in every single way, not just a physical way, that he wants us to see things as they are. That His desire, he, he could have left the man and said, well, you know, hey, you got something. No, he, he wouldn't leave him until he got everything until it says he saw everything clearly. And that's the problem in all three of those vignettes from the gospel lesson is, is that, that nobody was seeing things clearly. They saw things veiled. They, they misperceived, and they failed to get the implication of what they had seen. In the epistle, Paul is still just—he is so angry over these people who've come in and want them, the people in Galatia, to back up, be circumcised, and accept the, the yoke of the law— and he get, comes here with a with a metaphor that's one of those things that you read this and you think, wow, that's offensive. I can't believe a Jewish person actually used this as as the metaphor for for how to understand Christianity vis-a-vis Judaism. He says, "Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh." And remember how that comes about, and that is Sarah has doubt. He, well, did God actually say it was going to be through me that you had this child? He just said you were going to have a kid. So, so she says, yeah, go ahead and, and take her, take my maid. Well, the son of the free woman was born through a promise, which is when God comes and says, this time next year you'll have a child, and they laugh. And so they took matters into their own hands, and what did they do? They brought forth Ishmael through Hagar. And that was not a good thing. There's no sense there that, that, they went, that Abraham went to God and said, hey, what should I do? This is what Sarah thinks. He said, now this may be interpreted allegorically, this, this issue of the free woman and, or, or the one born through the promise versus one that was born to a slave. They can be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, he says. One's from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. That's the Mount Sinai is where the law was given. He says that, that the ones who were that, those children born at, of Sinai are, are children of slavery. And he says that's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia because it's in the wilderness, remember. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And so is our mother, this Jerusalem that will come down in the end of all things. He points there and says, hey, you know, that the Jews, which I'm one, was born of slavery. I've been, I've been born again, 
to a new and living hope in the same way that Jesus told Nicodemus that he, a Jew, would have to be born again also to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul is speaking about this heavenly Jerusalem that will come down ultimately in the new creation, and that, he says, is our mother, the free woman, the one of the promise, the one Abraham had the promise, Moses had the law. He says, for it's written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And we just read that in our Isaiah passage today. And he's talking about the, the, the countless number of descendants of these Gentiles who will be coming into the covenant community. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And remember that that um, Ishmael is making sport of or making fun of um, Isaac. And so then Sarah comes and said, you've got to put away the slave woman and her child. And then he doesn't want to do it. He did didn't mind sleeping with her and having a child by her, but he doesn't want to put her away and the child because, well, it's his child, and he, he feels connected to that child. I mean, he's not—Abraham never denied that it was his child, so he goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, no, do it. Do what your wife says. So in one instance, when he wants to do something, he doesn't go to the Lord, but when he does not want to do something, he does go to the Lord, asking for a way out of it, and we tend to be that, right? We tend to assume that if it's something we want— or want to do, then it's of God. And so we don't even bother to ask him whether it's of God. But when we don't want to do something, we go and say, Lord, hey, help me here. I, I don't want to do this. This is not the way I, th- I think things should go. And, and Paul is making a comparison there between those two things that um, that the slave woman had to be cast out because the persecution, and that's the Jewish belief that's going on there, is what Sarah saw was something that was going to be get bad over time, and it was going to be a danger to her son, the son of the promise. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul has fully aligned himself, even though he retains some parts of his Jewish identity, certainly, and he will boast of those things from time to time. He has said, no, I've moved past that. I'm now in this thing with you. Uh, we're children. We are children, not of the slave, but of the free woman. And Jesus Christ made all the difference in the world and changed everything in Paul's life, where he now identifies completely with these Gentiles and not with his fellow Jews who have rejected Jesus. He, uh, he identifies only with those who have received Jesus, who have perceived him and have understood and accepted his sacrifice.